Today we're looking at the, the sermon is when Jesus is in the house. Now those of you who are in Sunday school, you studied this passage this morning and it's an exciting passage. And last night, sometime during the night, I was awake and I just began to think through this message that I'm preaching today and some of the things that, I, that are so, uh, we're so accustomed to because it's one of those stories that we talk about that we, all of us can identify with hearing it at least because of the fact that it's a man that got healed, can't we? And the, the circumstances surrounding it. And as I began to think about that and to think about the fact of what Jesus did for him, I asked myself the question, do I stop and think, thank him on a regular basis for what he's done for me? You see, the important thing to all of us is, do we know Jesus? Do you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord? We're going to understand that this was the most important thing about this man. You see those verses, and since she's already read them, I'll talk about them as I get to a point where I want to use those verses. But the thing that we see here and we think about is the fact that Jesus, as you know, had begun his ministry back in chapter 1. We had such an exciting time about that. And then we see that he's here in, in Capernaum. And as he entered the town, he immediately began to do what? To preach. And, and I want to emphasize today how important preaching is. What did he preach about? He preached about the kingdom of God. And, and we learned that. And today we see Jesus demonstrating his power. And I, I think the greatest thing that we see, and for those of you who were in prayer meeting Wednesday night and, and were able to listen to the sermon by Dr. Adrian Rogers, you know he talked about all the healing and all the things. The greatest thing that God can ever do for anybody is when he heals them from our sin, sin sickness, isn't it? When we come to know Jesus as our Savior and Lord, because at that point we know that we have eternal life, that we're going to live with him forever and ever. We see that he cast out demons, he healed disease, he did everything. The things that, the, that we want to be a part of, the things that are exciting, but the greatest thing that he did was he saved this man's soul. He gave him eternal life. And so when they found out, he, we read that in chapter 1, now he's returned and the people are all excited because we get excited when something spectacular shows up, doesn't it? So that's why we can look at verses 1 and 2 and see what Jesus did when he came back. Here we see Jesus in his preaching. And I think this is a really an important point that I want to leave with us today. And I hope you'll grasp it when we look at these two verses. We see that he said, When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room even outside the door while he was preaching God's word to them. Now I want you to catch this. They were there to hear the preaching. Now we know that we can draw a crowd lots of ways, can't we? We can do a lot of things to get a crowd. I know of a, a, an evangelist today who's going around and, and, and wants to do revivals. And one of the things that they do during that revival, they give away a big screen television to the families that do certain things. So what do you come every night for? To hear the preaching or do you come to get the, the TV set? You see, Jesus wants us to understand that preaching is the key to the things that we do. It's what you do with the crowd that makes the difference. And what we see here, is the first point we see with Jesus here, that preaching was central to the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. Preaching. 
And what did he preach? He preached repentance, didn't he? That man must repent. We have watered down the gospel. We've almost left the impression with people, if you'll just join a church or if you just go through the, get baptized, you're going to be okay. No, there is a time in our life, all of us who have been saved, all who will be saved in the future, where God has called us to be a part of His forever family. We call it conviction, most of us do. The King James Version says they were what? Pricked in their heart, doesn't it, on the day of Pentecost. It's where we have a stirring in our spirit and we know that we want to be saved. We know that we don't want to walk the way that we walk. So what did Jesus do? He preached that sermons, those sermons on repentance, repentance and, pre- and, and repentance again and again. And it's something that ought to be preached in every church. And it's heartbreaking when you're a pastor and you hear someone who pastors a super, super mega church and they say they don't want to disturb people with that. They'll leave it up to somebody else. They want to tell them how to feel good and how to enjoy life. Friend, you can never enjoy life in its fullest until you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. I don't care what you have. I heard a story this week on sports. Some of you may have read the article. I didn't. But the commissioner of the NBA said that most of the basketball players in the NBA are very, uh, what word do I want to look here? They, they, they don't have any confidence in themselves. They are depressed. All of the things that you would think would go with somebody that doesn't have anything. The average salary of an NBA player is over $6 million a year. And they're depressed about life. They see no future in it. Folks, I'm going to tell you why. Because you can't see the future. It doesn't matter what you have until you know Jesus. And he came preaching repentance. And the second thing that we see here, he preached, uh, he showed us that preaching was God's chosen way of reaching people. As important as other things are, the preaching of the word, I will share that with you in scripture here in a minute, that that is the important ingredient of what it's all about. That's why, and let me just say this to all of us, when I get ready to preach, I'll deal with this message. The one that Andrew will be preaching next Sunday. Pray that God will anoint him. Because I hope you're praying that God will anoint me. That's important. It's important, Andrew, that we have that special unction, that special anointing to stand up here and preach. But folks, I want to tell you something. It's important that you have an unction to want to hear. You have a desire to hear what does God have to say to me through this scripture that we're looking at. You, you don't have to listen if you don't want to to my commentary on it. And sometimes you may not like my commentary on it. But the reality of it is you need to listen to what God is saying. This scripture that we're looking at here today, if we just walk out of here after reading it, and you let God speak to your heart, the truths are in there, it ought to excite us beyond excitement that we can be a part of God's forever family. If you're here lost today, you ought to think about what it means to be a part of God's forever family. If you didn't see anything else, did you see the joy and excitement of as we sing, as the praise hymns, as we thought about what God is doing for us, the excitement of hearing Him Speak to us through song. Did you see the joy? Can you go anywhere in the world, any event, any place, and have more excitement than we've had in singing praises to the Lord? I don't believe you can. 
And that's important. And we ought to have practice that. It ought to be an important part of our life. And it ought to set the stage, set the stage for us to listen to God and what He says. Listen to what the Bible says in Romans 10, 13 through 15. Romans 10, 13 through 15. He says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on Him to save them unless they believe in Him? And how can they believe in Him if they have never heard about Him? And how can they hear about Him unless someone tells them? And how will, and how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the Scripture says, How beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. Now, certainly that applies to us who preach the gospel. That applies to all of us. We've been sent. The Great Commission said what? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's the sent message. We are ambassadors for Christ. We're to go. What message do we carry? We carry His message because that's what an ambassador does. They don't go out and speak on their own. They carry the message of the country or the ruler, the people who they're out there as ambassadors for. And we're ambassadors of Jesus. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 1 Corinthians 1, 21, this is what the Bible says. Since God in His wisdom saw to it that the world would never know Him through human wisdom, He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. Through the foolishness of preaching, I think the King James says, people who don't want to understand, who don't care about Him, they see it as foolish. But it is the important ingredient in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So nothing should ever be allowed to get in the way of the preaching of the Word of God. So Jesus started out, and what did He do? He preached. Secondly, we see Jesus in His power there in verses 3 through 5. Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They could bring him to Jesus because they couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down to the front of Jesus, in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Now think about this with me for just a minute, if you would. Here they come, right in the middle of the service. They go up and dig a hole in the roof because that's the way the houses were made because there were so many people there they couldn't get in otherwise and they bring this friend to Jesus. Why did they bring this man to Jesus? I think, um, this is my opinion so you separate it if you want to, I think they brought him because they wanted to be healed. They loved him, they wanted to be healed. I'm not so sure and they maybe they were thinking about his spiritual life as well but it's obviously obvious to us that they were thinking about his physical health. And what do we do on prayer meeting night? Who, what do we pray about? How many of us pray on Wednesday night about people being saved? What's our big deal on Wednesday night about prayer? All we're praying about, somebody will get well, right? But we ought to be praying that people get spiritually healed is what we ought to be praying about. But we, all, we use our time to pray. I think these guys were just like us. They had a friend that was needed help. And they saw somebody who could help him, and they took him, didn't they? Because they wanted to see him get help. These men were willing, just think about this, they were willing to do whatever it took to see their friend get healed. But I think they got the surprise, and, and maybe not, but I'll tell you the world around them got the surprise, because what we see is that Jesus healed him. But first of all, let's think about them. They dared to do what was difficult. And folks, I want to tell you something. This world that we live in, and I'm talking to us now about spiritual things. 
It may not be easy for us to talk to people about Jesus. It may not be easy for us to confront people. It may not be easy for us to talk about our, our life in Christ, about what He's done for us. It's a lot easier to talk about the things of the world. I know that as well as you know that. But you know that there's difficulty if we're going to serve the Lord. You can count on it. But they dared to do the unusual. This wasn't a usual thing that somebody dug a hole in the roof and let somebody down, was it? They did the unusual because they wanted to see their friend healed. They, wanted, they were willing to do anything to see him healed. They dared to do the costly. And it'll cost us something if we're going to serve Jesus. You can write it down. He told us that we're going to be persecuted if we serve him. Everybody's not going to get their head cut off. Everybody's not going to be thrown into prison. But I can tell you that somewhere along the line, if you serve Jesus, you will suffer some kind of, of persecution. It may be emotional. It may be otherwise. But you will serve if you serve Him and you take a stand on those things which are godly, somewhere you will be persecuted. Not the way we read about what ISIS is doing. And I think sometimes that's what we think about. We think about persecution as being thrown in prison, uh, being ostracized from society, or whatever it may be. But there's a lot of other things that can happen to us. We can lose our jobs because we dare to be Christian. We dare to stand on Christian values. I think that's persecution. You may not think it is. I believe that it is. Because we've dared to do what God would have us to do. Take the football coach out there. I think it was in Colorado, wasn't it? Somebody help me. What did he do after the ball game's over? He did something that I guess would be natural for most anybody if that was where you were. He went out to the center of the football field, asked nobody to go with him, said nothing to anyone, bowed on his knees to thank God for the night. What happens to him? He gets fired because he dared to get on that property and bow himself and thank God for what he did. Well, guess what? If you start going out here and bowing and get on your knees and thank God, there's going to be some other people join you. I'll guarantee you that. So I'm assuming, I don't remember the whole story, probably even some of the football players joined him there praying and thanking God for what he did. Well, he paid a price. He didn't get his head cut off. He didn't lose an arm. He didn't get thrown in prison. But he got persecuted, didn't he? He got taken away from him something that was very precious because he dared to be what God would have him to be. So they dared to do the costly. So what happened when they let this man down through the ceiling? They did what they need to do. What did Jesus say to him? Son, get up and go now. They've got faith in you. They, you get up and walk away. No, Jesus says to him, Son, listen to what he says there to him in the latter part of that verse. In King James, he says, Son, thy sons be forgiven thee, doesn't he? What does he do? He does the most marvelous thing that could ever happen to that young man. Now I want to say something here. I've heard preachers and I've thought it myself and I've heard people say, they just picked him up and took him away. I think he had as much faith that he could be healed as they did or he would have never gone. And I think his faith is as important as their faith in his salvation experience. So we see him here now and we look at that fifth verse again and look what it says. Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. You're okay. Everything's going to be all right. And then comes the church people. We don't do it like we used to do it. We don't carry on and do things the way we think they ought to be done. 
So therefore it's wrong, right? He gets confronted. Jesus and his proof. They've confronted him. Look at verses 6 through 12. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Now, listen to this next verse. This ought to tell us what Jesus thinks about our thought patterns. Okay? You ready? Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins be forgiven, or to stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, walked out through the stunned onlookers. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? And and I'm being as serious as I can be today. Could you imagine Pierce Fulkerson? His picture was on that wall when he was like he was in that wheelchair. When he was all those years the way he was. And if Jesus would have said to him, take up your mat and go home, what would you have thought? What if God had touched somebody to be able to? We'd have thought that's crazy, wouldn't we? This guy's trying to forgive sin. Now he's telling the guy to walk off. He's really got a problem, right? But what did the guy do? He grabbed his mat and he took off. We'll talk about that a little more here in just a minute. But the things that we see are the criticism. Folks, listen. Don't be critics of everything. It's easy to criticize. Did you know that? It's easy to criticize. So easy. All of us have been there. All of us have done that. And I'm not talking just about church, about so many things in life. We, we, can, we are the best critics there are. In fact, people get paid to be a critic, don't they? That comes naturally. So easy to find fault in everything. You know, it's like, uh, like the guy... Fix, the lady fixed the eggs for her husband, wanted him to feel good. He hadn't been feeling good, he's in bed. Take breakfast to him in bed. She knows him that he's a grump box. Any of y'all ever met one of them? Don't say hold up your hands. But anyway, she fixes his breakfast. You know, she's got the eggs, one scramble, one fried, because she wants to make sure he's happy. She fixes the toast, sunlight fixed, one piece hard done, all these things. Orange juice on the plate, coffee on the plate. I guess she'd had Starbucks, but they didn't have it back then. But anyway, she had the coffee. She takes the breakfast up to him. He looks at it and looks at the plate. Looks back up at her and says, you scrambled the wrong egg. That's about the kind of critic that most of us are. You scrambled the wrong egg. Six and seven, look at those verses with me again. Look what they say. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. The criticism. This was Jesus' first encounter. If you go back and study scripture where he had to deal with the religious elite of the day. You know that person, those people, those whoever they may be, they know they've got all the answers. 
doesn't matter what it is, they're, they're the right one and everybody else is wrong. Have you ever run into somebody like that? They, God has spoken to them above everybody else. The rest of us are just wandering around in darkness. Have any of you been, been there and done that? Well, let me let you, let you on a secret. If you're the only one, then you better stop and ask yourself, is it me, is it him who's speaking to me? What he learned that day was that criticism was going to follow him throughout his ministry. And it did. Right down to the day they killed him. It did. And even after, because you know what? They did everything in the world they could to discredit the resurrection of Jesus. Look there at 8 and 9, the confrontation. Jesus, let me tell you, and I want to, I want to say this for me and for all of us. Jesus knows what we're thinking right now. That's hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? He knows where our minds are right now. He knows what's going through it. Every thought that we have. You know what? He already knows what I'm going to say before I say it. Every word on my tongue, He knows it before it's ever formed. That's the awesomeness of who we're talking about today. But look there in verses 8 and 9 what He says. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so He asked them, why do you question in your hearts? It is easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. Well, let's just be honest about it. It'd be easier for me to say something than it would for me to command somebody to do something that most people thought was impossible, right? So Jesus affirmed the salvation of the man through, through the physical of the man. Think about that. Jesus, being God, knew what they were thinking. Don't get over that in their hearts. And he immediately offers a challenge. His words are worth considering here today. Now think about this in verse 9 when he says, Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins be forgiven, or stand up and walk? Now I want you all to think about that. If you don't believe that he's the Son of God, and you don't believe that he can forgive somebody, is it easier for him to say your sins be forgiven? or to stay, stand up and walk. When you see somebody that's been a cripple, then you know probably many of those people knew who he was for years, and he says to him, get up and walk. He says, which of these two things is easiest to say? I don't think it takes a genius to figure that out. It'd be a lot easier for him to say your sins be forgiven if you're thinking the way they are. So what does Jesus do? He tells him to get up so he can prove that his first statement was true. Here's the confirmation. He proved that he was the son of God. So I will prove to you, verses 10 and 11, so I will prove to you that the son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up the mat, and go home. You doubt what Jesus can do? He's always doing something that will let us know that he has the authority to set us free. Think about this about the man. Jesus, what did he do? Heals the man. The man gets up. He picks up his mat. And I, can you see him leaving? The place is full. Jesus said, go home. How's he going to get out the door? These people are stunned, I'm sure. 
Something's happened that's beyond their belief. And he does what? Maybe elbows himself through the crowd. But he gets out and he leaves. Listen to what the Bible says, verse 12. And the man jumped up. <laughs> you get that? When Jesus does something for you, what do you do? You get with it. You jump up. When you know that you're being healed, when you know that you're sin free in the sense that you don't have to give an account to God that Jesus has taken it. He's paid the price. You're now set free. That doesn't free you to sin, sin, sin. That frees you to live within the bounds of God's requirements. Man, you're excited. How many of us have seen that person get saved and, and they just bubble over? They just, they just, they're exuberant. Have you ever been there and seen that happen? Have you ever watched a person who's fought it and fought it and the time comes and Jesus comes into their heart and there's just such a experience that it's to be around them. It's, it's hard to, to, to tell. I can still see old Fred Cooper when he got saved. The guy had been such a drunk. He'd been in New York on the worst streets in New York laying in the gutters and God had saved Fred. And you talk about a man that was jumping up. He wasn't jumping literally, but you could feel the, the, the jumping in his heart to tell people what God had done for him. He jumped up. He grabbed his mat. I like that translation, don't he? jumped up. He didn't just pick it up. He grabbed it. Man, I'm ready to go. I haven't been able to do anything. He told me, get up and take off. He grabbed uh, the mat and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God. See, there's where it all, that's the end of it all right there. What did they say? Exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. Church, I want to ask you something. Wouldn't it be tremendous if God's Holy Spirit were to touch us and we could see something happen here that we could hear people say they were stunned at what 